This is the ACR 2022 topic panel. In this podcast, our panel will discuss their best abstracts on the topics they were covering at our meeting. Hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. I'm Jonathan Kay from UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm here in Philadelphia at ACR Convergence 2022, and I'm here with my fellow rheumatoid arthritis panelists, an international group. I'm the only American in the group. I have Julian Sagan from Melbourne, Australia, and his fellow Australian from Melbourne also, David Liu. I have Aurelie Najm from Glasgow, Scotland, uh, Glasgowian, and uh, Janet Pope from Canada, and Richard Conway who is dialing in from Dublin. And we have been attending ACR Convergence 2022 over the past three days. This year, the meeting has been truncated uh, from the typical four and a half days to three very full days. A difference this year was the lack of posters. Posters were presented virtually and they were available online, but there were no poster boards. So there was no opportunity to walk through the posters and serendipitously land upon something that one had not intended to see. Also, uh, there was not the opportunity to run into colleagues on the carpets between the poster aisles, uh, and that was a disappointment to all. So I anticipate that next year the posters are going to return. Uh, There were a number of sessions and some very interesting abstracts presented about rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases. So we're focusing on rheumatoid arthritis and uh, several new molecules were presented. Uh, There were presentations about cardiovascular disease, drug toxicities, uh, interstitial lung disease, uh, and other topics. So I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Uh, Julian, what piqued your interest? Yeah, thanks, Professor Kay. So um, I wanted to um, get everyone's opinion on some guidelines that were presented yesterday. Uh, so these were the um, draft or semi-published ACR guidelines uh, for the non-pharmacologic management, or, or they've called it physical, psychosocial, mind, body, and nutritional interventions for rheumatoid arthritis. So this was presented by Bryant England uh, and a panel, uh, including a number of allied health practitioners. Uh, And these are guidelines that are anticipated to be published either next year or the year after. Um, So these were done via the GRADE methodology and involved um, expertise from a number of uh, physicians as well as um, allied health uh, practitioners. So this includes nursing, nutrition, occupational therapy, as well as getting the patient perspective. So they looked at a number of outcomes, including pain, uh, physical function, uh, work outcomes, which we know are quite important, as well as disease activity. But probably quite importantly, they didn't include um, outcomes of fatigue as well as sleep. And uh, really, they were limited by just how much they were covering. Um, so the things that they covered uh, in the guideline and really the only strong recommendation throughout the entire guideline was that uh, they recommended um, exercise um, to be done regularly, and this was uh, strongly recommended. Uh, they had a conditional recommendation for the types of exercise, including aerobic exercise, aquatic, uh, mind-body exercises, as well as resistance. And it'd be really interesting to see the data um, that they base these recommendations on. 
Um, they've also recommended rehabilitation as well, uh, so that includes compre comprehensive occupational therapy and, and physical therapy, which we know are quite important. And really, um, they based a, a lot of this recommendation on patient inputs and uh, patients reflected that, uh, particularly early in their disease, they wanted a, a comprehensive rehabilitation program to regain some of the lost function in early disease. And they made some fairly controversial dietary recommendations, including a conditional recommendation uh, for a Mediterranean style diet and, and a conditional re recommendation against any other prescribed diet, as well as conditionally recommending against uh, dietary supplementations. Um, and um, they also made some uh, weak recommendations as well um, towards um, adjunct therapies like acupuncture, massage therapy, and against things like chiropractic. I think this was a, a really a massive effort to pull this all together and to come up with the very first guideline looking at the non-pharmacologic management. And uh, this is what patients ask us about all the time. And we, we really don't have a lot of data and these guidelines pull it together. Um, but I think what's a, an inherent limitation of this sort of data is that I think it's unlikely or it's it's going to be tricky to ever come up with strong recommendations based on high-level randomized control data. Yeah, the great debate today, or the great debate yesterday, uh, was about pre-RA, or is there such a thing as pre-RA, early RA? Uh, it was the Americans debating the Canadians, and Janet Pope was one of the Canadians talking about early RA and suggesting that perhaps pre-RA is never caught in time to really prevent the disease. But Janet, you alluded to these holistic approaches to treatment of early RA and maybe a patient who's CCP positive encouraged them more to lose weight, to exercise aerobically and eat a healthy diet, vitamin D. Uh, right, right. Because what we do know, it's different than what we're talking about here, is that if you have these healthy lifestyle uh, areas, you do reduce the chance of getting rheumatoid. If you're ACPA positive and now you change your health, your unhealthy behaviors to healthy, we don't have the data, but it only seems to make sense that you're not going to be worse off if you change the healthy things. And I think, um, Julian, a lot of what you're saying, these are based on small RCTs. So there's an RCT, Mediterranean diet was better than usual diet, vegetarian or very strict diet Um uh, um, that way didn't seem to make much difference. Maybe one swollen joint count on average different. And that Tai Chi as a, for instance, so the mind body um, is better in RA than, than no exercise program, just telling people what to do. So it's pretty weak uh, trial evidence because they're often small and there's sometimes no blinding and things. But I think a lot of it would be common sense. And I'd be happy to tell my patients, look at baby, don't go out there and buy all these natural herbals. There was a negative, um, a turmeric or curcumin um, are trial out. So don't buy and do all these supplements, maybe try to live healthier and eat healthier. Certainly makes sense. And one can extrapolate from the prevention of uh, progression in RA to uh, how one counsels patients based on these guidelines. So that's very interesting. Uh, Richard, you've been sitting in Dublin uh, multitasking, uh, watching sessions, looking at posters, writing terrific articles for Room Now. What's been your impression of the most interesting uh, information presented about rheumatoid arthritis at this meeting? Yeah, so I, I'm a uh, big interest in interstitial lung disease and rheumatoid arthritis, and I think there's been 
finally a lot of good stuff um, at this ACR and at last ACR after many years of not having uh, really any um, terribly useful research in that area. So that's that's great to see. There's an abstract particularly caught my attention uh, presented um, late on today, uh, which was abstract 2248 by, uh, presented by Greg McDermott um, from Jeff Sparks Group. Um, and that abstract was looking at the prevalence of interstitial lung abnormalities um, in rheumatoid arthritis patients compared to controls. So we know with clinical interstitial lung disease happens in about 8% of rheumatoid patients over time, but this more subclinical um, phenotype, we don't really have a good idea of the prevalence of that. Um, so they used um, high-res CT scans that were done on RA patients and comparators that were performed purely for research purposes. So they weren't done because of symptoms. They found a prevalence of these interstitial lung abnormalities of 16% in the RA patients compared to 5% of the comparator patients. Um, and when they adjusted that multivariably, um, there was an odds ratio of 3.7 in the RA patients for having these. Even more interestingly, they went on and looked at what the impact of these was, was how they mattered. Um, and they did this by looking at 10-year mortality. So if you're a rheumatoid arthritis patient and you had an interstitial lung abnormality on your CT, your 10-year mortality was 53%. And that compared to 22% for rheumatoid arthritis patients who didn't have these and similar number of, of the comparators. Um, and they went on and did odds ratios for mortality based on this um, and threefold higher mortality for an RA patient if you have one of the abnormalities and, and a 3.7-fold increased mortality compared uh, to a non-RA individual. So I think what really what that shows or what it says to me is that um, this is really important. We uh, There's a kind of an urgent call for more research in this area to decide how to screen for this and then to get some information on how what, what should we do about this how should we monitor it how should we treat it how can we prevent these really negative outcomes it seems to be associated with absolutely at ular this year there was a paper from biobatizer where they found i think a 7.7 percent incidence of interstitial lung disease among rheumatoid arthritis patients. Here, they're finding a double that incidence as subclinical evidence. And this certainly is a major problem, uh, something that we should screen for uh, when we see these patients and possibly looking at antifibrotic agents as potential interventions, perfenidone, nintendamid, and so on. So very interesting. And we're going to see more and more about interstitial lung disease in years to come. Right. Uh, and I think, Jonathan, people are trying to develop screening tools because obviously the last thing that any of us or our colleagues want to do is have HRCTs that find that nodule that gets repeated like every three to six months uh, for the rest of their life or for years. But um, I think this is the first time, to the best of my knowledge, that these um, subclinical lesions have, were associated with a higher mortality. So I think that what you're saying about screening, you know, is not maybe ready for prime time on every patient right now, but my goodness, we have to think about it. Absolutely. And it's something that's potentially treatable uh, if picked up early. Uh, was there any correlation with anti-CCP antibodies, ACPA, uh, or other serologic markers for the interstitial lung disease? I 
don't I don't remember them specifically reporting on that, but I would suspect that it is extremely high. We, we know for interstitial lung disease in general that it's it's ninety percent plus or zero positive, um, so I suspect a similar number for this. Excellent, David. You've been wandering the halls looking at great abstracts. What have, have, what have you found? Well, I did want to circle back to a little bit about what um, a continuation of some of the things that. Um, Julian and Janet have brought up because um, I think they're really interesting and I think they relate to the kind of questions I get asked in clinic. So whenever I make a new diagnosis, well, seemingly whenever I make a new diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis in clinic and then I open it up for um, any other questions, I often get the question about should I change something about my diet or my exercise and then often I get asked what about um, turmeric? What, what can we do that? And that's this, that, that first one about turmeric is a, what Janet had referred to. And it's a really interesting study. It's an Indian study from Kochi in, in Kerala in India. Um, and as you're probably aware, um, turmeric's widely used in India. It's often used as part of Ayurvedic medicine. Um, and it's had big claims. And it's a big selling item nowadays. It makes up, there's a lot of, of, of sales going on, despite the fact that there's the possibility of hepatotoxicity and lead um, contamination. And there's no necessarily really, really clear evidence in rheumatoid arthritis. Now, away, it might be a slightly different thing, but in rheumatoid arthritis, there's been some um, very small uncontrolled studies, some um, controlled trials that haven't been blinded. But what they've done this time is they've looked at 200 patients. They've given it for 52 weeks of a high um, bioavailability uh, um, compound and what they and they they give it for fifty two weeks and they give it in the ideal situation in my mind which is take the patients who are completely under control give them turmeric give them curcum, this curcumin abs, extract and then try and drop down in a very slow reasonable way your existing conventional synthetic demands and see whether they can maintain that control and do that blinded against placebo so they gave every single chance to work. And it did absolutely nothing compared to placebo, zero, actually numerically slightly worse. So I think what this says to me is that, no, curcumin isn't a DMARD. Curcumin isn't an effective therapy in rheumatoid arthritis, and it shouldn't replace the therapies that we know and love for a reason, because those work. And this isn't going to, it's not, you know, you can say food is medicine as much as you want, but that is not going to replace that. Now, if I've sounded harsh on that, let me kind of give you the other side of things, which is a really interesting study from a small study, but interesting nevertheless, from the Riada in Amsterdam. And what they looked at there was um, a, so, uh, they've got a program that they've entitled Plants for Joints. What is this? So in 77 patients, they looked in a, a pragmatic RCT, they, they looked at this program they've got, which um, in, uh, instructs people about whole um, food plant-based diets as well as exercise and stress management. So all um, seemingly good things, knowing that this is a pragmatic RCT and there's, there's other bits that might be in play here, but they saw a reduction in DAS28 of 0.9 in the space of 16 weeks. So actually, um, whether it's the extra attention or what it is, whether there's any of those factors, maybe we, we've got to realise that we can actually deliver a lot of benefit for our patients by maybe some of that attention, or maybe, in fact, there's a contribution from the, plant the whole food plant-based diet or from the 
exercise or maybe even from the stress management. I don't know which components of the desk um, really saw the greatest improvement. I think that's, and, and I'd love to read the full paper when it comes, but certainly it's opened my mind up a lot more. I would have, if you asked me what the result would have been before this conference, I think I would have said, you know, I can tell you it's going to be a negative study, but it certainly wasn't. I've been proven wrong. And that shows why we need to keep on coming to these meetings to have our minds open. Sounds like a great screening uh, study where they look at all of those interventions together and show that some of them at least are effective. It'll be interesting to see which one, which components of that intervention are effective uh, because some may and may not. There's some literature about mind-body uh, training as being effective in reducing DMARD requirements. Uh, and certainly that makes intellect, uh, intuitive sense. Uh, but that's a very interesting uh, presentation, two presentations that tie in very nicely with what your fellow Melbourneian uh, talked about in terms of the guidelines. Now, Aurélie, you saw perhaps one of the most interesting abstracts in terms of RA therapy, pezolizumab. Paul Emery's presentation this morning at the late breaking abstracts. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, it's it's not that often, you know, that we get to see presentation on new mechanism of action um, in RA. So that was that was fairly interesting. So um, I think they start they started from you know the whole concept of checkpoint inhibitors and how that and how PD one inhibitors can actually um, trigger autoimmune reactions and in, in, in arthritis, and and they turn it around thinking, well, why don't we look into PD one agonism and how this would maybe you know allow to restore immunomyostasis. And, and this is this is basically um, the, the the starting point of that of that trial. So that was a phase two um, a randomized controlled trial. So there was actually two dose of the PD one inhibitor, three hundred milligram uh, PD one agonist, sorry, three hundred milligrams and seven hundred milligrams, and um, a placebo group. And the um, primary endpoint was change from baseline DAS28 at week 12. So it's a, it's a subcut um, and that's that was administrated and the, they actually met the primary endpoint showing that you know the treatment is actually able to reduce DAS28 significantly, DAS28 CRP, but also to reduce um, CDI. Um, at week 12. And the, the compounds, if you look into the different compounds of the DAS28 that were reduced, was actually swollen, tender joint counts, um, the patient global CRP was not always reduced. Um, it was it was also a fairly small um, sample. But um, yeah, that was um, that was late, late breaking um, abstract L03, by the way. But yeah, so um, the other thing that was fairly interesting in this study, uh, it was a trend, so it was not uh, uh, statistically significant, but it seemed to be working better in patients that were resistant to, I mean, inadequately responded to biologic. I mean, that would be the first time we see a treatment that would actually work better in this population instead of bio, compared to bio-naive. Um, so that's another quite interesting thing to, you know, to keep an eye on. And then safety-wise, it's look, I mean, in 24 weeks um, follow-up, 
the numerically and statistically, the events were not uh, superior in the treated group compared to placebo, and there was no dose effect in both um, treated groups. So that's something that's really exciting, and that's really um, I'm kind of looking forward to uh, phase two B and phase three now. Absolutely, I, I thought that it was very interesting that biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD inadequate responders were more responsive to this PD-1 agonist than mm -hmm. individuals who were naive. And that suggests that maybe there's a subgroup of patients with rheumatoid arthritis who do not respond to biologics or targeted synthetic DMARDs, but where the mechanism of action involves checkpoint inhibition. Uh, and that this mechanism may address those patients that don't achieve a response with our current therapeutic armamentarium. Uh, so this is very interesting. Remember, it's still a phase 2A study, and there are many drugs that have been promising in phase 2A, and then when they go to the larger phase 3 trials are disappointing. But uh, certainly this was very interesting. And as you pointed out, rarely do we hear about a new mechanism of action uh, that opens up new opportunities to treat our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So that's terrific. Right. Yeah. And I would just jump in for one thing. I've always wondered about this because um, we know checkpoint inhibitors rarely can cause incident inflammatory arthritis that can be quite aggressive. But I wondered about it not for that reason, because um, what we think of a, a abatacept, so a co-stimulatory molecule inhibitor or CTLA-4IG, the opposite of that is a PD-1. It's a checkpoint inhibitor. So there's, an, I call it anti-abatacept. Of course, it has its own name. And I I thought, well, of course, you know, if you're using something for cancer to mop your immune system, um, we probably don't want to then give them something that unmops it up if we're treating their inflammatory arthritis. But I always did wonder because I thought if you can have anti-abatacept to treat your cancer, then abatacept, you know, of course, is treating um, our RA. So the idea kind of made sense to me, but I'd never have the guts to even develop a trial like that. I would, I would think, well, we might do nothing and maybe we'll just do something different anyway. Oh, the question comes up about uh, immune surveillance, and it's a short study, so there's no opportunity to see about incident malignancies, but the question was raised after that presentation about whether incident malignancies might be a problem. So that's certainly something to look at in longer-term studies of that agent. David? Oh, I just wanted to say that there's, on that matter, and on the cancer issue, there's a beautiful paper by Dennis McGonigal talking about immune homeostasis in the context of checkpoints and really about not trying to shoot one way, too far one way or the other way and trying to hit in the middle. And I suspect that's exactly that. So I can understand why people might initially think cancer, but I think it's really about trying to get that immune homeostasis just right. There was another paper presented just this afternoon by uh, Jérôme Avouac from France, looking at the French national database, uh, looking at TNF inhibitors compared to tofacitinib and baricitinib, looking at the incidence of cancers, and they matched the patients on T uh, JAK inhibitors to those on TNF inhibitors and found that there was no increased incidence of cancer among those patients. So a large study that looked in the matched population of just over 3,000 individuals in each of the groups, a uh, larger number in the unmatched group. Uh, so it's somewhat reassuring that when they look deeper at the potential for cancer with JAK inhibitors, that 
Jack inhibitors uh, and TNF inhibitors have a similar incidence of cancer, not terribly high. Uh, different cancers, uh, hematopoietic and prostate, I think, for the Jack inhibitors and more lung cancer and one other cancer for the TNF inhibitors. So uh, very interesting study done cooperatively across France addressing a question that uh, has been burning in people's minds ever since oral surveillance came out. There was a lot of data at the meeting about uh, following on from oral surveillance. So, you know, it was the MACE uh, events and BTE as well. I, I, I was surprised just by how dominated it was in the posters and in the um, regular sessions as well. Yeah, Maya Bush uh, presented an oral presentation looking at MACE. And in the oral surveillance, they looked at MACE 3, which was uh, myocardial infarction, stroke, and one other. Um, uh, and as they expanded it with adding additional uh, cardiovascular events, so MACE 4, MACE 5, MACE 6, MACE 7, MACE 8, uh, MACE 8 included heart failure. The others were all ischemic cardiovascular events. It tended to lower the difference between JAK inhibitors and TNF inhibitors. None of those reached significance. There was a numerical uh, disproportion uh, where JAK inhibitors had slightly more events. But once you got down to eight events, uh, they were quite similar. But then if you add on venous thromboembolic events, then JAK inhibitors are, again, uh, more events than TNF inhibitors. So uh, it looks as if venous thromboembolic events really are real and driving the adverse cardiovascular profile of JAK inhibitors. But a very interesting study because cardiologists don't limit their uh, cardiovascular events to those that were reported in oral surveillance but expand it to a larger group. And then there was mentioned, perhaps one of you can talk about uh, the risk in individuals with underlying atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Who wants to tackle that? Well, I can just say briefly that when you do a sub-analysis of any study, the highest risk patients get the outcome more so than lower risk. So um, the biggest chance of having a coronary artery event would be already having one or unstable angina or knowing that there's already ischemic heart disease. And that's true in oral surveillance that drove a lot of the data, but it's true in any database that, you know, the more risk factors you pile up, especially the ones that are most linked to a past event of having a coronary artery event, uh, you're more apt to have another one. Although that's why we treat people to decrease that risk over time with all their cardiovascular meds. So pulling the group, should we be referring our patients in whom we're starting a JAK inhibitor to see a preventive cardiologist? Oh, gotcha. uh, oh, Jenna, please, after you. I was going to say, well, the cardiologist wouldn't want to see them. They go, nah, they're not high risk. We can't cath them. We, we can't bill for it. They can bill for seeing them. So I think you would want to risk profile because again, your largest risks are the traditional risk factors. And we should be able to help with the primary care to point them out and get somebody to help treat them, whether it's a cardiologist, an endocrinologist, or a primary care or a nurse practitioner, hard to say who should do it. David. Oh, I, I just really wanted to emphasize the earlier point in the context of that, because it really is all about risk modification. What we've seen from the, from the oral surveillance post hoc, what we've seen from um, the, um, the Brigham Epi, uh, Pharmacoepi Units um, STAR-RA study, which took those three insurance databases and looked at 
patients with the, the cardiovascular risk like we saw in our oral surveillance versus the ones who didn't. And what we've seen in this French data now is the same thing, which is that if you don't have those cardiovascular risk patient enrichment um, going on, then you're, the, the risk isn't there. But those if you get risk, you beget risk. And so those patients that already have risk, those are the patients I think we've really got to be a little bit concerned about. And that's a, that's a consistent message right throughout to the point where I think it's, it's harder for us to ignore, really. Absolutely. So in the last two minutes of this session, since Janet doesn't have uh, Kevin Dean or Mike Holler sitting across from her, doesn't have her partner in crime, Hani El-Gabawi, with her, uh, I'll give you the opportunity to summarize the great debate uh, and put forth your point of view. Right. Okay. So the great debate this year was on should pre-RA be treated with DMARDs and uh I think slam dunk, it was at this point in time, no. And pre-RA could be anything from ACPA positive up to and including arthralgia or even symptomatology that makes you think there's arthritis that we can't detect yet. So it probably depends on where you are on the spectrum. Um, so I think the answer is it's not ready for prime time. Hydroxychloroquine and stop RA uh, by Kevin Dean uh, and many, many others throughout the US was a negative randomized controlled trial. It was stopped early, but there was really no difference between hydroxychloroquine over the next three years preventing RA and CCP3 positive patients um, derived, well, people derived by many ways. They might have had arthralgia. They might have been just picked up by serum of first degree relative. So they went in to get tested or even testing at the fair for genetic testing kind of thing. So they were a big, different grab bag of patients, but RCT totally negative. But on the other hand, there was a really cool one, um, uh, number 530, Abitasap. It was presented at ULAR and more data uh, now. Abitacept in these arthralgic patients with strongly positive ACPA. So they had symptoms usually, strongly positive ACPA, and they gave six months of um, abatacept or placebo and then followed for another 12 months. So 12, a year off treatment. And it did decrease the incidence of RA, but it started attenuating over time. And they showed the MRI results. And it was quite impressive that these patients were more, people were more preserved on the abatacept side. So Plaquenil cheap, Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Avitasap, obviously more expensive, and we wouldn't know how long to treat and when to turn it back on. But I think there's a lot of work going on, and I think that uh, every meeting will probably have uh, more understanding in that area. Absolutely. Thank you, Janet. So this meeting went from pre-RA, trying to treat patients who are asymptomatic, who have a serologic marker that happened to be picked up to finding a new mechanism of action that's effective in individuals who fail treatment with biologic DMARDs and or targeted synthetic DMARDs. So we really run the gamut from rheumatoid arthritis that's not yet rheumatoid arthritis to rheumatoid arthritis where people are throwing their hands up and pulling their hair out and trying to come up with some treatment that uh, will help the patient feel better. Uh, other treatments that are in development uh, that we'll hear about, there's uh, data that we were presented at previous meetings about vagus nerve stimulation, and I anticipate that we'll be hearing more about that. Uh, and then the lupus world has been uh, excited by the CAR T-cell paper from George Shett's group in Nature Medicine and uh, extrapolating that treatment to rheumatoid arthritis in the future may be interesting and promising. So the world of rheumatology, when I started training, uh, and when Janet was just 
in elementary school uh, was uh, gold and hydroxychloroquine uh, and prednisone and a little bit of sulfasalazine, but we didn't have much that worked and patients knew their orthopedic surgeon much better than they knew their rheumatologist. But then almost 25 years ago, the first biologic, Atanasep, was marketed. And next year, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of the availability of biologics. So younger rheumatologists now entering the field have never seen those patients with rheumatoid arthritis who would be doomed to a life of elevated chairs. Our waiting room used to have chairs that were high chairs because it was easier for these patients to get out of a chair rather than a normal height chair. Uh, so it's a new world, but still unmet needs are being met. So uh, it's great to work with all of you and to anticipate ULAR in Milan and then the ACR meeting next November in San Diego. Uh, so thank you all for being a rheumatoid arthritis team. And I look forward to the next stage of our of our working together. And I thank all of you for your attention listening. I'm Jonathan Kay with Julian Sagan, David Liu, Richard Conway, Aurelie Najam, and Janet Pope. So signing off from Philadelphia, 